Hello, welcome to Palladium Podcast. I'm Wolf Tyvee, your host. Uh, today, I'm joined by a friend of ours who we learned we we met through this project through Palladium, Dr. Michael Zargum. He's got a PhD from UPenn in systems engineering. He now runs a private R and D team, a company where he organizes a team of experts to do a bunch of very interesting uh, cyber physical systems research and development. So really interesting guy. We had a great conversation previously. So we we wanted to basically bring him on the podcast and talk about how complex system dynamics applies in society and, and really push back and forth on that. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Okay. So yeah, if there's anything else you want to say about about who you are, where you're coming from. I'd love to hear that at this point. Otherwise, we can just kind of get right into talking about some of this really interesting theory that, we, that, that we've been interested in. Sure. I mean, for, for practical context, I, I'm an engineer in um, the practical sense in that I actually help design and monitor systems that get deployed. My PhD work was focused on um, large scale like information infrastructures, resource allocation problems, which actually has a lot of sort of consonants with the topics that are discussed when we're talking about how society evolves, how it's made up of institutions. And in practice, um, the data science and sort of economics and the sort of digging in and measuring how things are going and, and designing things that can essentially adjust the way that people behave or even the way whole institutions behave is a part of my my work. So I'm actually really excited to be here and to kind of get to share that with this community. Great. Okay. So why don't we start with something that I thought was really interesting talking to you previously that I think our audience would love to hear about, which is this simple idea in in complex dynamics, complex systems, and in dynamical systems, you often analyze things with a frequency domain analysis, which means you're looking at the frequencies of recurring phenomena in your system rather than looking just at kind of projecting forward from from its current state. and And that often lends itself to a whole different set of insights, uh, especially in, in anything where there's cyclic or, or oscillatory phenomena, which often that is the case in society. So applying that idea to society, I remember you had some really interesting insights on that. I'd love to hear kind of uh, hear you go off on that and then we'll, we'll grab things from there and, and see where we go. Sure, that sounds good. Um, I think the first thing to understand is that this notion of the frequency domain is just a, a representation. So you have a system and you might think about its time domain representation where you're looking at sort of a an x-axis is time and y-axis is some things that you care about. And as we see that, maybe it's not obvious to us what will happen over much longer time scales. And when we think in frequency domain, what we're saying is transform that same information about that same process or phenomena and reason about it by the, all of the many modes of, of cyclical variation that can make it up. And what's tricky about this is that uh, it's really unintuitive for people most of the time. And even when you're a student in engineering, you're like, why am I doing this? And then like, then one day you're working on like a real system and suddenly you see a phenomena that's really opaque in, um, in its time domain representation. And like, it just, snaps to you like, oh, like, you know, that process is going to like recur in maybe way in the future. And the reason why we got kind of off on this tangent was because some of the, the writings in, in the Palladium community revolve around certain things that emerged in the past and then have reemerged at different times in history. And it kind of breaks this underlying assumption of you know, math term monotonicity or like they, everything's just always improving and allows us to start to say, actually, there are certain phenomena that like in some ways are self-defeating that as they start to propagate and build up, they they have baked into them their own downfall. And this is the sort of essence of, of a, a cyclical process is one that is not um, inherently unidirectional, but rather the, the extension of the spring to its most extended point in the canonical mass spring engineering example is, is encoding the energy that pulls it back or the, the oscillation of a pendulum. Like it's not that it's just like the thing broke. It's that it was always characterized by both its sort of success and its failure as duels. Right. Yeah. And so, so more concretely in social terms, we have, we have things like 
the turnover of dynasties, you know, people often talk about, you know, a four generation dynastic turnover or 250 year kind of um, paradigm turnover cycle or a thousand year civilization turnover cycle. You look back through history, you see tons of these kinds of things, you know, the rise and fall of rise and potentially fall of our own civilization. You got anti uh, classical antiquity. Uh, before that, the Bronze Age civilizations. Before that, multiple cycles uh, in in sort of the early Bronze Age, late you know, uh, late late uh, Stone Age, and and potentially further back. So you see these you see these big macro cycles. Then you see the micro cycles of obviously generations and and you know rise and fall of companies, rise and fall of movements, rise and fall of various dynamics in society, and and so there's a lot of this stuff that really can't be or or isn't necessarily usefully analyzed in in you know what we're technically calling the the time domain and and we're saying more like actually there's these frequency domain components now one of the things that i thought uh was really interesting about this is not just like oh yeah you know we're we're just going to plot our our history on a different axis or whatever but 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 you bringing in kind of the cybernetic idea of having feedback loops at different time scales so, you know, people have heard of, of the idea of the, the OODA loop, right? The observe, orient, decide, act loop. And, and if that OODA loop or if your, your decision loop, your, your observation decision loop is very fast, you're going to miss very low frequency uh, phenomenon. If your decision loop is very slow, you're going to miss the high frequency phenomenon. And so you, you sort of inherently in society want to have... Uh, a, a diversity of different decision loops handling different parts of the problem that are sort of most appropriate to the time scale they're actually dealing with. And so I thought that was interesting. I'd love to hear some some of your, your insights on, on that stuff. Well, I mean, certainly you just sort of summarized, I think probably one of the most important points is that sort of very real world systems, not manufactured or artificial ones, have a great diversity of characteristic timescales. So even that example that you were giving where you're talking about, you know, civilizations versus the generations of, um, you know, within families and the, the, then the cycles within an even a year or a week, like the time scale seasonalities can go not just just from, you know, your week to your year schedule, but all the way out to, you know, generational to, um, you know, civilization wide scales. And although they're not quite so regular, um, it's actually really important to understand the role sort of systematic processes play. Like we talk about, you know, wealth accumulation. And one of the arguments is that due to, you know, sort of inherent, sometimes called the Matthew effect, um, rich get richer phenomena or scale free networks, if you're reading it from the sort of network science perspective, um, you get these power law distributions that come from preferential attachment or sort of the, this rich get richer dynamics, like all terms for the same concept. Um, because of this accumulation and the disparity of um, the, live, the, the living experiences of people, you get a pretty natural sort of overshoot and collapse where you start to see a longer time scale, again, may vary in the exact length, but as that process feeds forward, it's very hard to undo the accumulation. And the way that this happens generally is some sort of hard reset. And it's not necessarily a smooth sine wave. It can be a sort of accumulation, almost exponential. And then it can be a hard collapse in response to that sort of, again, overshoot or the things get so bad that there's a discrete phase shift or on a long enough time scale, a discrete phase shift from um, that accumulation dynamic to its reset. And so part of the reason that I think this is so important, though, is that we tend to struggle with um, reasoning about multiple timescales at the same time, despite the fact that real life is made up of this really non-degenerate wide distribution of timescales. And we need to be able to sort of interact with our uh, the world around us by sort of switching temporal modes. It's, again, maybe not possible to think in many temporal modes at the same time, but it is very possible to orient yourself and say, well, what am I, what process am I interacting with? And, you know, what temporal mode should I, th I be thinking about? And addressing things like, for example, climate change is so hard because nobody really can get into the mindset required to think about the, the sort of temporal mode in which the actions and the policies and the sort of decisions that we would make, both in sort of 
spatial scale, lots of people, whole societies, as well as temporal scale, how long we would have to do that change. It's not a change in behavior that you can do for a day or two. It has to be like a fundamental shift in the way that you see and interact with the world around you. And that is essentially tantamount to the long game. And that long game is not only difficult to think in, it's even more difficult to um, stay in, in the moment when you're dealing with all of your high frequency mode life stuff. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that, you know, those really long time scales in civilization, we do actually have mechanisms for that stuff. It's it's very unformalized, right? It's this kind of emergent set of mechanisms. But but you look at the history of things, you look at the rise and fall of civilizations, and you have what decisions are being made at that highest time scale. Well, you have things like the adoption of religions. You have things like the adoption of fundamental organization of society. You have the rise of particular cultures, particular peoples who live a certain way and sort of have this pre-rational commitment to living a certain way. You know, again, whether that's religious, whether that's structural, whether that's some kind of deep cultural thing. And you have, it's very difficult to change those things. And that's why those things are able to contend at that very long time scale, right? Is because they're difficult to change. It's not like you have this, you know, you have some idea one year and then suddenly you're you're heading off on a different direction for the next thousand years. It's, that happens, but 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 it's these very rare moments. It exists in the same characteristic time scale. And it means that we need both our adaptive our adaptive mechanisms have to be in the in the characteristic time scale of the thing that they are adapting to address. Otherwise they sort of fall short. Yeah. And this is, you know, something we've talked about a lot with palladium. We predict something like a large paradigm shift coming in the next little while. I mean, this, you know, obviously these paradigm cycles are a very long timescale thing, but we seem to be reaching the end of, um, or, or maybe a decisive point of what's been going on for the last, let's say, 250 years. And, and we like to envision, well, what if there was a new paradigm, some new dimension, some new direction to things? And, and a lot of this, like, because you're dealing with such a long time scale effect, it's something that inherently happens almost outside of all existing social structure. It, it happens because the, the situation is just sort of coming to a head and people are looking at it, recognizing it, and, and the situation is sort of forcing itself on us. And we, we are changing the way we see the world hopefully in a productive way, but on a very long time scale as well. And so this is something that I think, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of climate change situation. I think that's going to be like, that's going to be part of the paradigm shifts that, that happen over the next say, 100 years. I don't know exactly when that one will really force itself. But, but at some point, you get something that, that ends up being this new kind of pre-rational paradigm. This, it, it, it comes in on those very deep levels. And so whether that's like religion, whether that's structural, whether that's, you know, again, these cultural things. Yeah. Speaking of cycles, though, I mean, one thing that I find overwhelmingly, I mean, I won't say confusing, but sort of it continues to surprise me, despite the fact that maybe after the fact it, it might be obvious, is that we're sort of currently simultaneously sort of anti-religious at the same time it feels like society is adopting a version of science which is closer to religion in the sense that we trust in science as opposed to follow an experimental and you know theory building and testing procedure and like refine our understanding iteratively and it's very strange for me in particular because a lot of my phd work was on like large-scale optimization theory literal the construction of mathematical objects for which there are optimal answers but if you do that which what you realize is that there is no objective optimal in any problem because the problem framing itself is subjective. And be, like literally someone makes design decisions about constraints and objectives, about goals and limitations. And this is baked into and kind of hiding behind debates, debates about AI ethics and like data and model free, um, you know, algorithms or like methods that use less assumptions and people are trying to cut away the assumptions. But in the process, what they do is hide them. And what's interesting about this is that it actually further and further presses the, the objectivity or the sort of science-ish thing into something that looks from a 
maybe from a society's perspective, more like a religion. It's a thing you trust, not a thing you verify. It's a thing that has an absolute answer, not a thing that has an intersubjective answer. And it's very weird for me, especially as an engineer of large-scale systems, when I'm dealing with clients or stakeholders and they want me to find the optimal thing for them as if there is an answer. And I'm like... The derivation of the problem or the framing of the problem, even if it is as something as an optimization problem, ultimately begets the solution. And the solution is not decouplable from the premises or assumptions used to frame and define the problem, even if it was deterministic after that specification. And I, I emphasize this largely because um, I think it's an, a big issue in the way we even reason about the current state of our society. We treat it like we're rational and we're smart and we solve all these problems, but then I look at the way our rhetoric works and it looks more um, more theological. Right. Yeah, actually, this is really interesting because it, this connects to one of the big things we've been critiquing over, over uh, you know, the past, the past couple of years with Palladium. This tendency for, in the liberal discourse, things to be grounded in this idea of objectivity or the correct answer or some technocratic outside view that that tries to come to the correct some optimal answer that that somehow escapes its assumptions and escapes the the judgment inherent in its assumptions and when you really think about it it doesn't actually work like that like you're saying you know you can parameterize a problem and then solve the problem but but in your choice of how to look at the situation, your perspective, there is still an enormous amount of content. In fact, the, the, in some ways, the important content is in your choice of perspective and in your judgment, the fundamental judgments that you can't sort of outsource to some algorithm and say, oh, the algorithm said this, so it's the correct answer. It's, it's, there is a lot of stuff where you have to be the one making that decision. And this is something that I think is a little bit at odds with our current paradigm. And I think I'm hoping that this will be one of the things, you know, as we undergo these, you know, again, a large timescale transition right now, hopefully we will come to a more explicit and honest understanding of that, the role of the judgment and the framing and the perspective that is outside the technocratic problem solving and, and is defining it. And, and that's, so it's sort of like in the complex system dynamics, it's not like it's not part of the dynamics. It's just one level up, right? It's, or at least this is how I'm seeing it. I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. But it, it seems to me like it's just one level up. Like you've got some system of, of reasoning, system of interaction that is helping you choose those perspectives and and that's that's kind of what's going on at that longer time scale is is you the cho those choices of of conceptual frameworks and perspectives that give you the the problems you're more immediately solving. Well, let me give you a little bit of an overview of how we would go about attacking a, a problem of of this ilk and a modeling problem. The first thing is that you need to understand both the spatial and temporal scope, and you gotta place some dotted lines. And the first subjective choice is where those dotted lines go, because you're going to place some interface, you're going to cut some process or concept of phenomenon, and you're going to put it outside of your model. And you're going to say, well, I'm going to make some assumptions or take some premises about that. And you're going to put some stuff inside of it. And that what's inside of it isn't just about what you choose, which concept you choose to include, but also over what time scale you're going to choose to analyze it. So you have to have a sufficiently general understanding of all of the relevant phenomena in the model context you're going to attack. And then you have to say, look, for the reason of which questions I'm trying to answer or what kind of mechanisms I'm trying to design, it's okay for me to push some of these things outside of my dotted line, and I'm going to keep these other things inside. And now once you've done that, you have to acknowledge those assumptions because later you're going to come back and kick them. You need to figure out how sensitive your results are to those choices. And if you did a good job, then you're going to be able to kick them around a lot and just you know, try different stuff on your interfaces and say, oh, cool, my conclusions don't change that much. But if you haven't actually started by acknowledging that the problem framing was subjective, you don't even retain the capacity for that kind of sensitivity analysis or that kind of, well, I know I assumed these things, but how robust is my conclusion to maybe those not being right? 
and and I think that's actually really important. Um, it also just ties into the way that we frame problems. We we use a variant of a, a dynamic uh, of dynamic games based on generalized dynamical systems, and these generalized dynamical systems basically um, they contain not just real numbers like you would see in sort of a differential equation setting, but they contain like arbitrary data structures, and we make a harsh cut between the things that we know that we don't know and the things that we are at least saying we know or we're saying that we can declare, say, I'm designing a mechanism, I can assert something. Really separate, okay, we think people might behave like this, but when they do it, this will happen. And sort of by separating the um, behavioral or exogenous or external bit that we're making assumptions about from the part that we're able to, you know, assert with high fidelity, you know, Newton's laws or Kirchhoff's laws if you're an engineer, your statics and dynamics if you're, you're doing, you know, maybe robotics, you're, you're going to start using stuff that you know holds, but you're separating it from the stuff that you know that you don't know. And this is super important because when you go to evaluate a design or to, you know, learn a system, you're going to tr- like parameterize or use machine learning to learn how a system is going to behave in the future. You actually do very different procedures with the things that are, you are asserting and the things that you are attempting to infer or model as a black box. Um, and so I, I can't emphasize enough that if you, you don't first acknowledge the you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful, sort of Georgie box, and then say like, okay, but what what do I need my model to be useful for? And actually pick your model to be useful for that. And then ultimately kick it on its edges, push it to failure and figure out its domain of usefulness, then you really shouldn't bother building models at all. Because at that point, you're just telling, I mean, okay, you can tell stories with models and that's fine, but you need to know the difference between telling a story with a model and using it to better understand something, to predict something, et cetera. Well, it's interesting because you're almost always building models. Like even the simplest form of life, you know, anytime there's some kind of feedback process where the life has has any kind of internal state uh, that it's keeping track of, that that is in some sense a model of reality. And and so you know you scale up, you get to humans. We're, we're building all kinds of models all the time. We've got models everywhere. And I think what you're getting at is is you often get a lot. You often gain a lot by being more conscious about your use of models. You have you more explicit more clear about where you're making assumptions, what your models are, and then therefore, you know, how to kick them, how to test them, how to see how sensitive they are and so on. But this also seems to be somewhat in tension with another idea that I wanted to explore here, which is the degree to which a lot of this stuff at at those highest levels starts to look like just ecosystem dynamics. You know, like the, the set of feedback loops that we have as a society is not something that was cooked up by some guy in an armchair or some team in a lab that designed the perfect system. It was, it's not even stuff that we necessarily understand. It's, there's all these feedback loops that are often emergent, these evolved mechanisms for dealing with things, evolved models, things that have worked and we just sort of take them for granted. We don't even realize that we're taking them for granted. And so there's this interesting tension between like the actual reality is this ecosystem of of assumptions that we're making that have evolved. And we want ideally to gain more consciousness and more sort of control over those things. But you're, you also have to respect the fact that like the evolved systems will contain knowledge that you don't even know exists. So you often know things that you don't actually know that you know, and you don't even know that you need to know them but you know them because of these these evolved histories in in our assumptions. And you don't even necessarily know them. What's really weird is that with collective intelligence or collective dynamics, whether you're looking at sort of insects or ecologies or societies, you, you have a system that is effectively exhibiting autopoiesis, which is the sort of this, the life essence of creating more of yourself, right? That 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 concept exists at, at levels that are beyond the scope of, of individuals and that we can't quite fathom. People use analogies also to how your brain works, right? Now, your neurons don't know things, but your 
brain exhibits effectively, at least what you perceive as your consciousness at the whole level. Like it doesn't, there's no notion that the individual neurons or that like ants in an ant colony individually exhibit um, the knowledge that is perceived in the behavior of the system up a level. And so it's actually really important to understand that, you know, we can't actually place or maybe we shouldn't place all of our understanding of complex dynamics at the level of of the agent, but we have to look at it at the level of aggregates and that those gestalts can actually have attributes that are not recognizable in the individuals and that the properties are themselves inherently emergent. And I think you're right. Like reasoning about this in, in ecological terms is very good, but that also doesn't mean that they are sort of a priori, um, like persistent in that you see ecologies overturn, you'll see a, a swamp dry out and become something else over time, maybe due to exogenous factors in the a longer timescale process, like a geologic process could lead to an ecological process turning over. And so we're back to characteristic timescales where things might seem like they're in some sort of equilibrium if you look at them in a timescale. But if you zoom out enough, they're not. Or in fact, if you zoom in enough, they're not. And I think this kind of comes back to the subjective choice of the frame or lens you're taking whenever you're analyzing some sort of dynamical system. So I I want to take this back again to that tension between kind of respecting the knowledge that you know is sort of bigger than yourself. I think you made a great point that this, this knowledge that we have, you know, we have to use the plural we there, right? It's it's we have the knowledge. It's not any individual one of us have the knowledge often. And and it's knowledge that we don't know about and so on. We often ha- we have to respect that. So there's a certain level of like just just caution, right? Precautionary principle in engineering, you have to do this all the time. It's like well, you know, doing something new inherently involves risk because there's reasons that the old thing worked that you don't even understand. And, and so you have to respect that. We've talked about this before I think in terms of like it's an almost social relation to to the ecosystem of of concepts in this case, where where you're sort of you have to find a way of interacting with it that is in some sense mutually respectful and, and that allows it to kind of maintain its own internal dynamics. And there's big tension with with between that and this idea of kind of gaining in consciousness, gaining in capability, gaining in, in more explicit individual knowledge that led to, I think, you know, a lot of the big errors of, say, high modernism in the 20th century, where people do these things like, you know, we're going to build a whole city on this plan of rectangles, uh, you know, from this totally top down kind of perspective. And, and of course, they're missing tons of detail about what actually goes on in the city. And the thing fails partially for that reason. And and so there's this tension. But but at the same time, like getting more explicit about things offers these incredible gains in other areas. So there's this tension between you know, those gains and and respecting this system. And I also want to bring in just one more element here, which is this question of like the individual agency. We'll get, maybe get more onto this later, but I think I think knowledge getting concentrated in individual agents is also one of these key processes that pushes things forward. There's a ton of things to hit in there. So I'm going to try to pick them out, pick out a few one at a time. Um, I mean, I guess if I work backwards from the last thing about individual agents, I think it is really important to understand that the knowledge still might not be uniformly distributed. I think that there are uh, always going to be people who, for whatever reason, are accumulators, but they're also not going to necessarily accumulate everything. And so you get these sort of networks and you have, you know, maybe you can think of them as uh, being, you know, social in nature through the interconnections of people, but there are also interconnections of fields, which are sort of larger aggregates and that we kind of have this non-trivial topology of of capability and information and that we have to be aware of the fact that it doesn't have to be completely uniform and it doesn't have to be completely, you know, centralized in sort of a, you know, hub and spokes way. In fact, in practice, we're almost certainly back in this sort of scale free power law distribution kind of paradigm where, yeah, it is the 
likely that there are going to be individuals who contain or group, small groups that contain large fractions of the sort of functional knowledge. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's sort of limited to them because one of the great things about um, creative processes is that a diverse context creates the opportunity for the new idea. And assuming the new idea eventually finds fertile ground, it has the potential to propagate. I kind of want to leave that off. And there's a lot of cool things that one can look at from a bottom up. But, um, you know, actually, what I would like to get to is this sort of idea of middle out, because we talked top down and we you hit on the sort of what I think of as sort of the the failed Soviet cybernetics sort of conceptualization of the world, the hyper centrally planned world. And to be honest, we're seeing a resurgence of that from our, you know, tech centralized platform managing every aspect of your life but instead of on a nation state dimension we're starting to see it on a sort of you know i guess a cyberspace rather than geological space segmentation but you still see something that looks a little bit actually a lot like a sort of soviet central planning control every aspect of your life and interactions with others it's a little creepy to be honest with you but i also think that it's natural in the sense of how power accumulates in the way that we were discussing accumulators and overshoot and collapse earlier. So it's like both natural and also kind of creepy. Um, so that's the top down extreme. We talked a little bit of bottom up extreme. And then kind of where I lean is, is sort of middle out in the sense that I don't think of myself necessarily as um, optimizing at the level of, of agent. I optimize at the level of like locality. So I think in like very sort of hyper fractal local terms. So like I'm part of a bunch of localities. So I might have a personalized intersection of of communities of practice, many of different types. And though although I'm still, I guess, an individual potentially u- uniquely identifiable by that intersection, I still sort of optimize or decide at this sort of like uh, local neighborhood level. And, and when I start to think about that, it starts to sound like, you know, think global, act local kind of truisms. And you start to realize that there are maybe some um, some truths to understanding, okay, I care about these big picture things, but anything I'm going to do about it, I'm going to do in some sort of locality. And one of the cool things about, I mean, the internet and in particular web three in my experience is opportunities to attempt to manifest sort of alternative structures from a local footprint like a group of you know six 12 24 people trying to manufacture a thing that has a again a some sort of peer-to-peer or replicator dynamic to it. Like if it works, you can fork it and clone it and someone else can do their own instance or can connect to your network, et cetera. As long as you have these sort of potential for replicator dynamics, it's almost like um, von Neumann machines, but in cyberspace. You you make a thing that's capable of itself propagating without you propagating it. And so like for me, that sort of middle out thing comes from recognizing that we have to reason about individuals and the, the diversity of individuals that you would want to support and make sure that their um, heterogeneous preferences are supported and that we're not making the over, overly powerful assumptions about what is rational or what is the goal of the person. You're just giving them action spaces. It says, you can do these things now. And then they do with them whatever they do. And when I um, really try to reconcile the difference between this sort of top-down central planning way of making large time scale, large spatial scale change versus a very bottom up, which tends to devolve into hyper libertarianism, bordering on, you know, anarcho-capitalism at the like, well, everyone just does what they want and they, you know, read Ayn Rand and chant about it. And not to be mean, but like that's as it is in some ways as um, overly idealized as the top-down extreme. There's something in the middle. In fact, to our earlier conversation, there is a big, fat, messy distribution of things from very top-down to very bottom-up that represent the, the the plethora of scales that make up real life. And so, I tend to poke in the middle and try to find ways to make changes that work both from a, hey, it's good for the agents that would participate in that system and feels like an improvement, but that it also implies, you know, at least hopefully properties like self-replication and that that self-replication implies something desirable. And 
not to get too mathy, but we think often in terms of like invariance or ways in which a particular procedure or protocol can be said to not violate a particular property and thus sort of despite the kind of runawayness of the replicator dynamic explanation, that the thing that's replicating isn't completely um, uncontrolled. It's actually self-regulating in a meaningful way. And it the hope would be that if that self-regulating thing were to actually propagate enough, that you would have a, a bigger system that had that self-regulating dynamic self-replicated over a larger footprint, thus attempting to achieve larger time and spatial scale change with something that wasn't designed from the top down, but was sort of designed from the middle out. I, I think something that that widens this up a little bit is to say also that you can't always do do the middle out thing, right? Often you're dealing with a problem that is in fact a top down problem where where you have a very clear problem definition and you just want to optimize, you know, the, the placement of the parts within that thing in a very, very top-down way, often you are dealing with also these, these very much systems systems kind of outside your control where you are actually sort of at that bottom level and you have to recognize that and, and be behave in that way. So you sort of, it's almost like, again, like the time scales, here we're talking about almost- Spatial scales. No, this is, this is literally spatial scales. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not quite spatial scales. It seems almost more like topological, like scale types or something. Top, topology is basically shape of space. So if you really think about it, it's not just spatial scale. It is, in fact, the the shape of the space. But you still kind of first you kind of zoom in and figure out what um, what spatial scales you're operating in. And then you ha might have to ask meaningful questions about whether that is, you know, shaped in the way that you think it is. And it's back to modeling questions. But I very much agree that the the topology of the space has a big influence on uh, the way systems evolve in that space. Um, and in fact, not to get overly technical, but like if you look at differential topology, the shape of the space is described by what it means to move through it. And I think a lot of these systems are best understood, not by, again, describing the topology in a very top-down way, but to say, if you are in this space, moving works like this. Therefore, the shape of the space is actually like derived from the rules about what it means to move within it. Yeah, and the point to connect it to the timescales thing is is your decision process, your mode of decision, your mode of action has to be in some sense in accordance with your spatial scale in this case. And, and so I think that's really what you're getting at here is often you're dealing with these sort of middle type of scales. And so therefore, often you should be operating on this middle type of decision process. So one, one thing that I wanted to connect this to, though, before before we go further is is it reminded me of this proverb from Confucius. It says, you know, this is just very much aligned with, with some of the stuff you were saying is if you want to make the empire right, first put your own state in order. If you want to put your own state in order, first put your own household in order. If you want to put your own household in order, first put your own heart in order. It's sort of this uh, this idea of of kind of like this global consciousness, but then acting in this concentric manner, sort of very much related to this diversity of spatial scales and and in, in regards to action. So I just wanted to bring that up. I like that a lot. And I think it, but it also speaks to the sort of fractal nature of what we're discussing and this idea that actually, regardless of which scale you're in, there is a scale above you and a scale below you that's relevant. And I tend to think this actually comes up in, you know, engineered systems engineering a lot in terms of validation and verification, where a verification generally relates to kind of, did you construct the thing you specified correctly or your inward look? you've specified it and you said, did I do it right? Whereas validation looks kind of outwardly and says like, ah, this was intended to accomplish this. Like, does it accomplish the thing? You know, it's placed within the system above it. And so in this this um, example with the, I guess it's not really an example, but with the, the sort of um, proverb that you provided, I think it actually digs at something very fundamental about the importance of the, the nested relationship of these scales and the fact that whenever you hone in on either one of them, you would look at it in the context of the one above it, but then look within to ensure that, you know, the parts are working right because the, um, the whole thing is ultimately a, a sort of infinite stack in the sense that you could always find the, the scope or scale or 
think of it as the contextual system and you always have some constituent systems. And part of this dotted line drawing is again about figuring out which one you're working in. Because if you model them together and you don't actually do the segmentation that you say, okay, well, my context is these things and my sort of constituents are those things and kind of again, create these sort of modeling interfaces where we make some assumptions, we, we can't actually make meaningful progress on a, on a problem at hand. We end up just armchairing it. So how do we actually do this in practice? We, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about these various time scales and spatial scales that we have to deal with in life, especially and and in society. You know, we exist in this complex system, and and to act effectively in it, we have to be in accordance with our the the, the types of problems that we're facing. How do we do that in practice? I mean, because people people often people do actually deal with these things, right? We are, we are in fact dealing with this every day. What are the mechanisms? Like, how can we understand those mechanisms better? How can we understand what we're doing better? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So I guess I'm going to have to pick, I'll pick a context in order to make this concrete enough, right? So let's talk about what I'm going to call algorithmic policymaking. And we can use Web2 platforms. They'll be more familiar to people. We go on Twitter and Twitter is going to have some software in the background. And they're going to be doing something that with their machine learning algorithms that is effectively tantamount to policymaking from the perspective of the constituent users of Twitter. And what that means is that they are going to decide on the objective functions, the KPIs or measures for whether or not a particular algorithm is fulfilling its job. And then they are going to have a team in the background, sort of, you know, mostly unbeknownst to the Twitter denizens, building those machine learning models and testing them against those metrics and making decisions about um, what it means for that thing to be working as intended and then deciding whether to deploy it and remove it. And so, in this context, I like to sort of really recognize the similarity between the choices of the goals of those algorithms and the decisions about when to roll one off and put a new one in, or even to decide that it's worth putting resources against a particular function in the background of the platform, which actually mirrors what we would see, at least in a traditional physical infrastructure from a um, a more state-oriented governing body. And so, you know, by making this analogy, I think I'm kind of inviting people in the role of software engineer or data scientist or machine learning engineer, et cetera, product manager, to actually introspect about the ways in which their product decisions or their evaluation metrics and the use cases that their software is ultimately fulfilling is tantamount to policymaking from the perspective of the constituents who are using the platform that you're defining algorithms for. Right. It's governance. It's not It's not just like, oh, yeah, I'm solving a computer science problem or I'm solving an engineering problem. It's you're solving also a governance problem. But in particularly when you frame the problem. So to our earlier discussion, you might argue that once you've decided what success means, that there's a best answer, potentially. The problem is the best answer was conditioned on how you framed that problem. And one of the things that we see is people maybe framing those problems in ways that don't necessarily reflect the wants and needs of the constituent body of those platforms. And we've seen a bunch of different Web2 platforms approach different at parts of you know, moderation and censorship. Again, those are to me two sides of the same coin in different ways because they're making different policies. They're not necessarily like one is right or wrong, but we're sort of you know choosing which ones to participate in based on the policies they make, which brings us to some interesting analogies to um, like work by Hirschman on um, exit loyalty and voice, and ton of analogies to monopolies and markets, and start to ask like, what does it mean when at least in cyberspace we have or don't have the ability to opt in or out of a particular policy-making regime, which is executed predominantly through algorithms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is interesting. Like, if you just think through the mechanics of how do those decisions actually get made right now, you know, like you've got some engineer, the engineer gets gets an email from their boss or, you know, the boss has a meeting with them and says, hey, look, we've got this problem. Can you solve it? you know, try to get this to happen or try to get that to happen. It's just very, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe there's more formal processes in a lot of places, but a lot of the times it seems like one of the, some of these important decisions are being made in this very much like, let's throw an engineer at it with with relatively minimal kind of guidance on on what they're supposed to be accomplishing. And then the engineer goes and thinks about it a little bit and and comes up with, 
a solution that seems to work as far as they understand the problem. And, you know, then they build it out and and they deploy it and it does its thing. And then maybe, you know, maybe there's some external activist group or some some user feedback that comes back and says, hey, actually, you know, we didn't like this or we liked that or or you need to change this. And so you get this other pressure coming in and maybe that gets reflected in, again, another change in the algorithm or something. So it's but but I think like this this key idea in, in me telling this story is just that these processes are very informal. It's it's almost like the the decision making, the actual decision making, which is actually the sort of this political task and this governance task of framing the problem, deciding what the problem is, deciding what the requirements are and so on. That part is very unformalized in a lot of these cases. And, and I mean, this is sort of unavoidable. Like you can't formalize all the decisions you're making. You're, you know, especially in an early stage of any kind of project, you're just making these decisions as needed. But this is kind of contrasts. I just want to contrast this with how we think about governance in terms of, say, what Congress does, right? Congress is highly formal process of ratifying bills and orders and so on that are supposed to, you know, go out and d- define requirements for things. And these are extreme points in, in, in the informal and the very formal. And I think there's, again, a lot of room in between. But I actually wanted to touch this back on some of the question of dominant ideology, because what you described exists in or is driven by this sort of dominant ideology dominant ideology around hyper-objectivity because we don't entertain this as a sort of subjective policymaking act. It just sort of happens and it's then driven largely by the, you know, what I'll call the sort of lower frequency mode thing that's happening slowly in the background, you know, whether we think of it as the current state of our culture or our tech culture um, that is actually giving us the process that gives rise to the story you just told. And what I would argue is that a lot of the degeneracies in these platforms' ability to meet humans' needs or to put their you know, end users, um, not like what gets them to use the platform, but what's actually like good for them um, forward is the fact that we have this mindset of, you know, objective, it's an engineering problem, as opposed to thinking of it as a policymaking problem. And if we were to see a well, I guess a pushback over time, we might be seeing shifts in that um, ideological or sort of cultural footprint around what does it actually mean to be objective? These things are intersubjective. Okay, if they're intersubjective, then like, you know, which group of people's shared truth is the thing that this particular platform or policymaking decision or algorithm actually services? And can the people who it doesn't suit go somewhere else or are they locked in? There's a lot of questions, but they they, they actually come back to your, to your point to governance questions and thinking about how we govern things. But that doesn't mean we have to govern them in the government way. Yeah, it doesn't have to be formal, but I think there's something really interesting that you're getting at here that you're alluding to, which is if we thought in a different way ideologically, if we approached, if we had less of this commitment to the idea of objectivity and more of the commitment to the idea of intersubjectivity and governance as as being really what's happening in a lot of these cases, we might actually pay more attention and more effective attention to what we're doing there without necessarily making it formal, but making it more conscious. And, and I think we might get better results as a result of that. And, and this, so this is one of the things, you know, this is the reason, one of the reasons we're always harping on this is like, because it does look like one of these big errors of the current culture where we've, we've over-indexed on this idea of objectivity. It served us for a while, but we've overshot. And now, and now you have so much, like what I see is a lot of kind of corruption and misuse of that idea of objectivity where what we're actually doing is really coming apart and the idea is no longer facilitating uh, sort of effective orientation. And this is so not new because if you look at it very carefully, like let's go backtrack to something like the Enlightenment, maybe the last time that you could argue that there were huge advances in um, science and technology kind of all at once, you know, a little bit of a maybe a leap. But let's say we're talking about great improvements of the fineness of measuring time, great improvements in the fineness of of lenses, uh, gears, etc. This corresponded with advances in mathematics and the creation of calculus. But there's also a really interesting cultural dichotomy in that time. And I'm going to use persona examples. So, look at people like Leibniz and Newton, who were like the canonical modelers, the advancers of the representations of the world 
you know, co sort of mutual inventors of calculus. And you look at like Leibniz was obsessed with these sort of um, uh, notion of this like perfect, complete language, which could describe everything. And I mean, very similarly. So, you know, Newton was like very much trying to explain the entire system of the world. And they had in kind of complementing them in the same time, you had people like, um, you know, Voltaire and you can read Candide and you, you have Pangloss, who's basically a caricature of Leibniz, basically saying, oh, it's the best of possible all possible worlds. And you get this very optimization framed caricature that's like it's the best because it is it's it's here it must be the best which sounds a lot like the discourse around you know evolution as an optimizer as markets as an optimizer you see like you know blake criticizing or mocking newton like this idea that there's this juxtaposition between the the artist and the the understanding of that which goes beyond what can fit in the model and the sort of one hand the sort of overreach at least in the caricature maybe not necessarily in the real humans because keep in mind that the like brilliant scientists who advance things do also evidence that they had some understanding of the limitations of their methods even if they wished to push and they felt like they could just get rid of those limitations they knew that they were there so it's really the 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 artistic or folk portrayal of those people that often says like it combats the message of the um, the, the hyper-rational or combats the message of the modeler and says, but no model is good enough. There's always more stuff. And if I take the model to its extreme, I can look at how absurd the claims it would make are. And I'm emphasizing this because to me, the current debates look more like the, the dichotomy in that time. Again, if we're thinking over long timescales and looking for recurrences of themes and societal dynamics, we are seeing this big leap in advancement in certain pieces of technology measurement and inference and mathematics and computation. And then on the other hand, we're seeing this paired with an almost religionization of science as at the cost of its actual procedure for sense-making. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.